I bet you this is just exactly what it sounded like when Jesus was preaching out in the public and the rustle and the bustle of people and children's voices, amen? So I'm not going to turn any loaves into anything today, but... How you doing out there? Let's get our Bibles out this morning. We're in Proverbs chapter 6. By God's grace this morning, I'm going to finish Proverbs chapter 6 unless Jesus comes back in the middle of the message, and in which case I'm going to quit preaching. So we are in Proverbs chapter 6. We've studied all the way through. We've looked at seven things that God hates. We've found many principles and gems as we've gone through here. We've looked at sexual immorality. This is, I believe, the third installment on that as God is uh, teaching his people how to behave in such a way that commands the blessing of God. We said that God hates things that hurt people, and I can't think of anything that hurts people more than immorality and adultery. Shatters people, breaks husbands and wives and families to pieces, and the enemy uses it in such a powerful way in our generation. We have drifted from the moral moorings that have made us a great nation into a state where the judgment of God is pending. It's been said before that if God doesn't judge America, he's going to have to apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah. Think about that for a second. We could use some national repentance. And I pray that messages like this, uh, it has to start in the body of Christ first. And uh, before we can pray for our city and our state and our government and our representatives, we have to look at our own hearts and our own homes. So on that happy note... Proverbs 6, you look dead serious already. First service was shell-shocked. They needed people to help them out the door, but we had to run some shuttles to the parking lot. Proverbs 6, I'm going to thank God for the word, and I'm going to read verses 30 through 35. Father, I thank you for the word this morning. I thank you for Proverbs, a book of wisdom uh, that gives us understanding, that renews our minds. Lord, I pray that these principles that you extract from these verses, Holy Spirit, would quicken our understanding that our minds would be illuminated, that our hearts would be enlightened, that we would see the truth of your word. Father, I pray as you do this, Lord God, you would uh, heal your people this morning. You would untangle uh, the ball of knots we make in our souls, Lord God, and that you would bring restoration. I pray that in Jesus' name and the church said... Proverbs chapter 6, starting in verse 30, reading all the way to the end, 35. People do not despise a thief if he steals to satisfy himself when he's starving. Yet when he is found, he must restore sevenfold. He may have to give up all the substance of his house. Whoever commits adultery with a woman lacks understanding. He who does so destroys his own soul. Wounds and dishonor he will get, and his reproach will not be wiped away. For jealousy is a husband's fury. Therefore, he will not spare in the day of vengeance. He will accept no recompense, nor will he be appeased, though you give many gifts. A few powerful verses here in the conclusion of this matter in Proverbs 6, our third installment on 
biblical morality. We look at these last five verses, and what I see here is a powerful closing argument in the final attempt to warn God's people to avoid the idea of sexual immorality. See, the, the reason that God puts things in Scripture like this is to serve as a warning, a warning and then as a deterrent to us, amen? God loves us. God's not in heaven trying to get us to do things we don't want to do. He's not in heaven trying to spoil all our fun and make us miserable and put restrictions and restraints on us. That's not what God does. God is trying to pr protect us from things that will destroy us. Come on, it's a good place to say ouch, amen, or something. <laughs> and many times people who don't have a relationship with God see the Bible and the church as oh, a whole bunch of rules and they're no fun and they can't enjoy anything and they just, you know, they're miserable people baptized in lemon juice and that's Christians. And that's not the truth at all. God is trying to protect us. These verses are a powerful closing argument, a warning to us that if we're entertaining these things or thinking about crossing these lines, we should avoid it at all costs because the cost is too high. Verse 30 compares the adulterer to a thief who steals to avoid starvation. Listen to this. People do not despise a thief. Now, if you just stop that statement right there, I have to say I, I don't agree. People do despise a thief. And, and uh, you know, I just want to say, you know, in all our modernity, in all our, you know, intelligence and intellect, in all our uh, technology, stealing is still wrong. It's still, it's still a sin. And some of you are looking at me like, what? You know, if I can take something, if I can pilfer it from the office, if, you know, I can go home with a laptop, if I can take some of this, or, you know, if I can get this off my neighbor's lawn. You know, and people think like that. If I get it, it's mine, I got it, I win. But the Bible says he who steals is cut off. The Old Testament says when you and I steal, we cut ourselves off from what? The blessing of God. That what we've taken becomes all we're going to get. Why? Because now we don't have the favor of God on our lives. So the thief is never blessed. God doesn't bless a thief. So if that statement would have stopped there, I would say, you know, I'm, I, I have, you know, I don't agree. But it says, people do not despise a thief if, here it is, he steals to satisfy himself when he's starving. You see, we get this, right? There's none of us that would think, you know, our poor guy was starving. He took some bread. You know, he took some of this. He, you know, he, he, he took that donut. He didn't pay for it. That, you know, to, that's a high crime to some people. But we get that, that if someone's starving, they, they take something to feed themselves. We can have some mercy for that. We can have some grace for it. Hopefully our hearts are not so hard that we would say, a thief is a thief. You know, throw him in jail. No, my heart would be to feed that guy. Take him in. Tell him God loves him. Put a meal in front of him. Amen. <laughs> I remember when my grandfather retired. He was a trucker all, all the days of his life. He retired. He went from driving trucks in, you know, the South Bronx to working in McDonald's in Fishkill just as a retirement job. And he would have to throw out hamburgers and all kinds of things at the end of the day. And he would see the homeless people hungry and he would, he would give them stuff. And they're yelling at him, Lou, you can't do that. And he just didn't want to hear it. Because, you know, Italians have to feed people first of all. But, I mean, when you see somebody hungry and you're throwing out a bag of food, man, have we become that hard? And the word is making a point here that, you know, we can have compassion for someone who steals 
when they're hungry. But verse 31 brings in a good point. Even a thief who steals to avoid starvation is expected to make restitution for what he's taken. Now, check this out. Yet when he is found, and you know what? It always happens. We, you know, the things we do come to light. He must restore sevenfold. Say sevenfold. He may have to give up all the substance of his house. So check that out. Even a guy who steals to avoid starvation, while we can understand and have compassion, when they're caught, they have to make restitution. Say restitution. There has to be restitution. And now, you know, you would say, what's that all about? Why is restitution so important? Listen, because the person who was stolen from has been violated. And that violation doesn't go away until the person who did the violating makes up for it in a way that, you know, makes things right. So if you take a loaf of bread from your neighbor and you're hungry and the neighbor's like, man, you stole from me, I'm violated. How many people have been stolen from before? How, did, how does it feel? Not good. There's been times where people stole things from me. I remember in high school, Pastor Mike got a new uh, pair of sneakers and put them in my locker waiting for gym, and people were eyeballing those sneakers. I went to the Old Lords on Hamilton Street, man. It was like, you know, that was the ghetto back then. So, you know, they're eyeballing my sneakers. When I came back for gym, they were gone. Someone kicked open my locker and stole my sneakers. I remember I, I had one of these primitive prehistoric inventions. It was called a Walkman. Anyone remember that? Walkman, and we had these fossils called cassettes. We would load our jean jackets full of cassettes and we put it in the Walkman. Coom was like a brick, you know, you put it in your pocket, you put your headphones on. Woo! Someone stole my Walkman. Again, right out of the locker. I, we put a lock on it. Did you say how? Oh, oh I was going to say Italians know how to get into locks. That's, you know, they, they just kick it open, to, you know, and, and, and my Walkman was gone. And I felt so violated. As a young man, I was a Christian. I didn't steal. I was like, hey, God, I didn't sow this stuff. It's a violation. And the person who violates us when they steal from us is obligated to make restitution. Why? So that the, the violation can be made amends for and things can be made right. Now, let me, let me show you the p potential of restitution here. A lot of people don't think that they have to make restitution. And, you know, they're just like, well, too bad. You know, God forgives me. Let's move on. But let me show you the power of restitution. A preacher who had just finished preaching on the subject of restitution had a young man come to him up at the end of service. And he said, Pastor, you put me in a tough place. I've stolen from my employer, and I'm ashamed to tell him about it. You see, I'm a boat builder, and the man I work for is an unbeliever, and I often talk to him about Jesus, and he just laughs at me. In my work, I use expensive copper nails that won't rust in water. I've been taking some of those nails home to build a boat in my backyard that I've been working on, and I'm afraid to tell my boss what I've done and offer to pay for them because he'll think I'm a hypocrite, and he'll never come to Christ. Yet my conscience bothers me, and I feel I must confess. The next Sunday, the young man saw the preacher again. With a smile on his face, he exclaimed, Pastor, I settled the matter with my boss, and I'm so relieved. The pastor said to the young man, what happened? He, he said, uh, he looked at me intently, my boss, and said, George, I've always known that you were a hypocrite, and now I'm sure of it. But maybe there's something to your Christianity after all. Any faith that makes a man admit that he's been stealing a few copper nails and offer to pay for them must be worth having. You see, never underestimate the power of restitution. 
Never underestimate coming clean and, 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 and making amends and making things right that were wrong. There's power in it. There's power in the truth. There's power in transparency. There's power in humility. And the person who refuses to make restitution uh, doesn't get to enjoy all of those benefits. So apparently in that day, the ethical, moral, and legal code of the day was that a thief would restore seven times, up to seven times of what he had taken. So if you took one flat screen, how many would you give? This crowd's good at math. Good. Seven, right? You take one loaf of bread, how many do you take? Get back. Seven, okay. So what's the point here? Well, look, if somebody takes a loaf of bread from you and then they give you seven loaves back, man, there's something in you that goes, well, hey, come on, all right, you know, you more than made up for it. And, I, you know, I can, I can forgive. Let's let it go. Let's just, let's just, you know, God bless you. So that sevenfold restitution does something there to bring healing over the violation. But let me ask you this. What restitution can be made to your neighbor if what you've stolen from them is their husband or their wife? What restitution can be made from what you've taken from them has shattered their marital covenant? Verse 35, as we skip down from verse 30, answers the question. It says this, he will accept no recompense, nor will he be appeased, though you give him many gifts. 35 is telling us that the, the restitution that can be made when what was stolen was the person's husband or wife is basically nothing. Wow. There are some things that we do that are very hard to fix. There are some things that we break that seem impossible to put back together again. I know we all know Humpty Dumpty, but sometimes it seems like this cannot be put back together again. Look what it says in 35. They will accept no recompense. How do I fix this? There's nothing you can do. There's no payment. There's no payback. Don't even think about bringing me seven wives either. Don't even... Don't, I got one wife, thank you, Jesus, and she's more than enough. And I'm sure she don't want seven of me. See, there's not enough hours in the day to take care of seven of me. There's not enough Lysol. Never mind. She sprays Lysol at me and chased me out of the house. They will accept no recompense. That's serious, isn't it? That means you broke something that the guy's like, you can't fix this. Nor will he be appeased through many gifts. Hey, here's a new tractor for you. Here's the deluxe weed whacker. I mowed your grass for you. It's not cutting it. What happens when you stole something that can't be made restitution for? Verse 35 forces us to face the very real issue of what happens when restitution seems to be impossible when we've broken something that seems impossible to fix. I want to say something. Adultery breaks things that seem impossible to fix. That's why it's so serious. That's why God warns us not to partake in it because it breaks things and now they're broken and nobody knows how to put them back together again. Adultery breaks the crucial bond of trust between married people. Look, if you don't have trust in your relationship, you don't have a good relationship. You know, if you won't walk in front of somebody in the, in the woods, then you don't really trust them. What's she doing? What's she doing back there? 
What, what do we used to say, Pastor Mike? Somebody say, I got your back. What are you doing back there? Right? I know you got my back. And, you know, if you can't trust somebody, could you imagine if there's no trust in your marriage anymore? When you've shattered something now that that person is always suspicious of you. It, it's a death toll to intimacy. My wife and I trust each other. I trust her. I don't have to follow her around. I don't need to, you know, put a, a tracker on her car. She can look at my phone. I can look at her phone. We, the computer, you know, we don't have, you know, we, I got a secret passcode with a retinal scan. and a, No, I don't do that. What, what's the matter with you? People that got all that stuff, they're, they're up to something. I don't have, I don't have the code. I, don't, I can't get in. I got a five-pound hammer. I'll get in, right? Trust. Adultery shatters trust. Immorality shatters trust. Being addicted to pornography, carousing, being flirtatious, all of those things shatter trust in a marriage. Adultery breaks trust. Number two, adultery breaks the terms of the marriage covenant. The whole thing about being married is that God does a miracle. He takes the two and makes them one flesh. Amen? That's a miracle that happens there. It's not just, you know, rhetoric or words or nice flowery speech, and God will make the two one and blah, 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 blah. No, it's actually happening. When I do weddings all the time, five, seven, eight a year, when, when we're st I'm standing here, standing in the place of God, being a mouthpiece for God, the Holy Spirit is taking two individuals and literally making them one, binding them together in a spiritual covenant. Going outside the covenant, you know, when you, when you literally physically join yourself to another person, you shatter the covenant. And that can be something that, you know, is impossible to fix. Look, and I've heard people say, well, you know, if, if someone looks at someone with lust, they've committed adultery on me. Look, I don't buy that nonsense at all. All of us have looked and we need to repent to God, but, but there's something really different between looking at something and actually joining yourself to it. There's a big difference there. So, you know, don't play the martyr with that. Forgive one another as God forgives you, amen. Please get off the cross. We need the wood, you know. There's too many martyrs around. You know, she looked at the guy, Brad Pitt in the movie and she cheated on me. Give me a break. I was looking at him too. Look at those abs. He looks good. He looks good. That's when I sit down in Gucci's chair. I'm like, make me look like Brad Pitt. He said, he said I'm a beautician, not a magician. I can't write. But understand, you know, when we join ourselves to something we're not supposed to be joined to, whew, that shatters that covenant. That shatters that trust. And it can seem impossible to fix. Adultery breaks the most intimate of relationships. It hurts your spouse, it hurts your children, it hurts your family. How do you think these families feel that were brought together in marriage and now, you know, somebody stepped out on somebody and the whole family's shattered. Grandparents don't know how to feel anymore. Everybody's caught in the middle. You see why God hates this? Not because it's, oh, I want to spoil your fun. I don't want you to have a good time. Marriage is a good time. Amen? Yeah, three people, praise God. For those who persist in adultery and refuse to repent, it will eventually break your relationship with God. I've said this before and I'll say it again. Physical adultery always precedes spiritual adultery. If you'll cheat on your spouse, you'll cheat on God. And you'll run after other things. 
you'll run after idols. I've never seen a person who cheated on their spouse have a really healthy, right, blessed relationship with God. David had to get the prophet Nathan to stick his finger in his face and, and you know, well, who's the guy who took the one lamb? Nathan said, it's you. You did it. And David said, God said, I gave you all these blessings and all these wives. He said, if you wanted more, wouldn't I even give you more? That, that blows my mind. And you took the one thing that didn't belong to you. <sighs> Ouch. It's as serious as it gets. And so understand that adultery breaks things that seem impossible to fix and so the best way to not get in the position of trying to fix things that seem impossible to fix is to never cross those lines in the first place. This is why verse 32 says, whoever commits adultery with a woman lacks understanding. He who does so destroys his own soul. Did you hear that? There's a warning right on the pack, Surgeon General. Known to cause cancer, amen? I don't know what they can do to put on the pack of stuff now other than say, hey, you, this is going to kill you, right? Yeah, you know, we put things in our bodies and all the chemicals, and we eat this and smoke that and drink that, and it's, it's going to kill you. And look what the word is saying here about adultery. He who commits adultery with a woman lacks understanding. Let me just pause here for a second. When the Bible says lacks understanding, that's just a very polite way of saying you're being an idiot. You're being played for a fool. You lack understanding. Oh, thank you. Thank you very much. And also with you. No, it's not a compliment. The Bible's saying you're being a dummy, you're being deceived, you're being a big fool because this is 100% guaranteed to kill you. It's not if, but it's when. In the final point of this closing argument against immorality, verse 33 reminds us <coughs> of what's coming if we ignore the warnings and cross the lines anyway. So there's a warning on there. It says not to do it. It says that it's going to, you know, you lack understanding. You're being foolish. It's going to destroy your own soul. And then 33 fleshes out what comes as a result if we cross the line. Whoever commits adultery with a woman lacks understanding, and whosoever does it destroys his own soul. Listen, wounds and dishonor he will get, and his reproach will not be wiped away. Did you hear that? wounds, dishonor, and reproach. Anybody want some of that? You're on the buffet line. I'll have a double helping of wounds. I'll have a side of reproach and, uh, you know, give me an order of dishonor. Nobody wants any of those things. You see what the warning is telling us that's coming? All kinds of stuff that we never want. No one wants to be wounded. No one wants to be dishonored. No one wants to have reproach that doesn't go away. Let's look at this. Let's look at wounds today. What kind of wounds come as a result of sexual immorality? Well, there's relational wounds. You destroy your relationship. There are some people who have had such bad patterns in their relationships and in their intimacy and their dating that they carry so much baggage that every relationship they come into, they come in broken and wounded, and it's just a matter of time before they destroy that relationship as well. Look, I've been doing this for almost 30 years. I've seen people in patterns. You know, they go from one disaster to the next. They pick a bad person to a worse person to a person just like the last two. What are you doing? 
You're wounded relationally. You're broken relationally. And it's come from these bad decisions. And now you can't even have a healthy relationship. My heart is broken for this generation that has been assaulted with ideas of immorality from the time they were little children. Do you realize how young our children are when they are exposed to pornography these days? Do you realize what they're being told in school and what the culture of the day is? There's no more dating. Nobody dates. They call it the hookup culture. They hook up. They have sex together. They move on with no strings attached and do it all over again. Oh, I'm preaching on Sunday morning. It might be empty next Sunday. But at least I'll get a seat. And what's that from? Immorality. And it wounds us relationally. It also wounds us emotionally. Do you realize the person, after they've committed sin and they're exposed, and now there's all these repercussions, and their relationship is shattered, there's lawyers involved, they're living in a small apartment, their, their, their children know, their neighborhood knows, their coworkers know. Do you re realize at night when they're alone and they're left with their thoughts and the re reality of what they've done, how emotionally destroyed they are? And the devil makes it look so fun and so entertaining and so, you know, ooh, it's going to be a good time. And sin is always fun for a season. And if it's not, look, if it wasn't fun, we wouldn't do it. Oh, I have to sin today. I'm just going to cowboy up and do it. I really don't want to do it. It's no fun. No, it, the enemy tricks us and we think it's fun and it is for a short season. But then the price, the bill comes. And the emotional destruction. Look, I've sat with men and with women totally destroyed emotionally. I've watched people walk around for months like zombies as their marriage is dragged through the courts and their assets are split up and their children pick sides. And I've seen them looking like a shell of themselves and just thinking, man, the devil is such a thief. Because when we violate God's word and we cross the lines when we were warned the wounds are relational they're emotional they're spiritual unless there's repentance and restoration that person's spiritual walk is shattered in ways we just can't even understand do you know sometimes there's even physical wounds attached to adultery statistics show that cheating spouses are often killed by the spouse that was cheated on i studied some statistics yeah i can't even say it this morning I studied the stats. I looked at the FBI. Look, you watch cold case files. You watch those things, right? Married people are always killing each other over infidelity. Well, she can't get me. She can hire a hitman, buddy. I saw it on TV. Why don't we watch that, right? Kim's, at, Kim's here taking notes. <laughs> Cheaters who face exposure will do some desperate things. In some countries, adultery is still punishable by death. In Muslim-majority nations, honor killings are legal. If someone's caught in adultery or, or you know, they're, they're, they're in that situation, you can actually kill them legally, and, and it's thought to be a good thing. So there can actually be physical ramifications. You might just cheat on the wrong person. And a husband's fury is a volatile thing to contend with. A woman's scorn is a volatile thing to contend with. Come on today.
So there's wounds. How about dishonor? I want to say this. No one who is honorable honors someone who breaks their marital vows. No one who is honorable. Oh, the guys might think it's okay. Oh, your neighbors might think, well, you know, they never treated them good anyway, or they deserve better, or they deserve to be happy. We hear all this nonsense. But nobody honorable honors someone who's broken their marital vows. Because if you're honorable, you see that, and you think, well, if that's the way they treat the person who's most important in their life, how are they going to treat me? What level of, you know, what level of, uh, you know, trust can I have in a person like that? Look, I'm not saying any of this to hurt anybody. I'm saying this, you know, because I want us to get the warning here. So dishonor. How about reproach? Reproach is an attitude of disappointment or disapproval. You say, what does reproach look like? You've seen it before when you were a kid and you did something wrong and both your parents are looking at you. You know, when I would do something wrong in the store, my mother just had a look at me. She'd be going through the clothes rack and all of a sudden, you know, I'm halfway up the shelving at Kmart or something or I'm underneath the rack. doing. She just look at me and I know what awaited me. And it's that look when you do stuff wrong and your parents look at you. You walk by your father and he eyeballs you the whole way. Reproach. Now, you know, some of us have seen it in our marital relationships when you get in a fight with your spouse or something and then everybody's mad and you walk by each other in the hall like you don't see each other. You know, hopefully that only lasts for a couple hours at most. You're not supposed to go to bed angry. Some couples have been up for decades. But, you know, that look when you're, you're mad at each other. Now, think about that if it never went away. The perpetual cold shoulder, the perpetual disdain. People just looking at you like, look at this guy. Look what, look what he did. What a mess. What a jerk. What a selfish person. Ugh. Hard way to live. Wounds, dishonor, and reproach. That's the warning of the consequences that we should avoid. Verse 34 tells us that the adulterer sentenced himself to unquenchable wrath from those that they violated. Listen, for jealousy is a husband's fury. And remember, I said both of these things apply to both genders, amen? A, a woman that is scorned and, you know, cheated upon, there's fury and indignation there, rightfully so. So both, for jealousy is a husband or a wife's fury. Therefore, they will not spare in the day of vengeance. You know, this is something that we got to understand. When we do these things and hurt people in such a deep way, at such a deep level of betrayal, that understand the adulterer destroys themselves, body, soul, and spirit, and they also destroy others around them in the process. That's the thing we have to understand about sin. Sin doesn't happen in a vacuum. Well, I sinned, and it was just, you know, I'm the only one to know, and I'm the only one. I sinned all by myself, and it doesn't hurt anybody else. I'm in my little bubble of sin. It's not the way it ever works. There's a ripple effect to every sin, to when we sin in our uh, marriages, when we sin against each other, uh, husbands and wives. There's a ripple effect through our family. The kids are watching these things, and, and we're, 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 our behavior becomes the norm for them. And there's so many broken people who have watched messed up situations that, you know, the children are broken. The families are broken. 
The friends are broken. Hmm. Understand that this wrath that comes attached to these actions is in many ways justifiable and it's unquenchable. You know what? The bottom line is this. Sexual immorality and adultery are hard things to forgive. You know, there are some things that are easy to forgive, like a guy stealing because he's hungry. And that was the initial point. But there are some things that on the other side of the coin that are really hard to forgive because they're such a deep betrayal on so many levels. You know, there are people who just can't let these offenses go. And that's why Jesus said the only biblical grounds for a divorce was marital infidelity. Jesus said that. Jesus realized that, you know, these things can be so hard to forgive that there's no way to repair the situation. Humpty Dumpty fell, but he didn't just fall off the wall. He fell 25 stories. And now you can't even find all the pieces to put back together again. Are we getting the seriousness of the picture here? There are some things that are just really hard to forgive, and they can ruin relationships. I want to tell you a true story about famous Russian author Leo Tolstoy. Many of you have heard of him. He's written some incredible works, just a renowned author. Leo Tolstoy thought he was getting his marriage off on the right foot when he asked his fiancée to read his diaries, which spelled out all his lurid sexual exploits. He wanted to keep no secrets from Sonia to begin their marriage with a clean slate. Instead, Tolstoy's transparency sowed the seeds for a marriage that would be held together by the vines of hatred instead of love. Sonia wrote, when he kisses me, I'm thinking I'm not the first woman he said he loved. So some of his boyhood indiscretions I could forgive, but not his affair with Exania, a peasant woman who continues to work at the Tolstoy estate. One of these days I shall kill myself with jealousy, Sonia wrote, after seeing the young son of the peasant woman, the spitting image of her husband. Another diary entry dates, he relishes that peasant wench with her strong female body and sunburnt legs. She allures him just as powerfully now as she did all those years ago. Sonia wrote these words when Exania was a shriveled old woman of 85 years old. For half a century, jealousy and unforgiveness had tormented her and destroyed all the love she had for her husband because she just could not let it go. Some things are hard to forgive. Some lines are better off not crossed. Some things that we break, we have no idea how to fix. Adultery is a serious issue. Now, as I bring this message in for a conclusion here, Proverbs 6 is a strong, direct, crystal clear warning to us. And I've preached it as exactly as it reads. I haven't softened it up one single bit, and I've done so so that it would be the deterrent that God intended it to be. You might have thought, Pastor Rick, you're being a little harsh there in a couple spots. No, just want to preach it just like it is, because God wants it to be a deterrent to us. But having said all of that, sexual immorality is a destructive sin, but it is not the unforgivable sin. You should have been happier about that. Let's try this again. Sexual immorality, adultery, it's a serious sin. Can I get an amen? But it's not the unforgivable sin. 
Okay. Let me try and break this down more simplistically. Whatever line you've crossed, God can forgive. Whatever you've done, the blood of Jesus can cleanse away. Amen. There can be forgiveness and restoration if there's genuine brokenhearted repentance. So there are sins that we do where we break stuff and we don't know how to put them back together again. But God, you know, his, his ability to bring grace and to bring restitution and to bring reconstruction is just amazing. I've seen people destroyed by years of baggage and immorality, restored to health and then carry on to have healthy relationships. I've seen marriages that were touched by adultery where both partners repented and took responsibility for their part and they moved forward and had a healthy, blessed marriage. I've seen families miraculously recover from all kinds of things that ravaged them. But listen to me, all of this showcases the goodness and the grace of God. If we will repent and come to him in brokenness, he will put back together what seems impossible to put back together. It showcases his grace Now, I'm going to have a musicians come And just uh, play some worship here this morning If you guys would come quickly uh, And I want to open up this altar In first service, we spent time at the altar Just crying out And I want you to come this morning If you, if you have struggles in your own life That you want God to address If you have issues in your own marriage That are creating problems If you have children that you know, are in fornication and they're living together. If you, if you see what's going on in our schools and in our society and in our culture and your heart is broken, I want you to come to this altar and cry out to God this morning because we need revival in our nation. We need revival in our morality. We need to repent of the debauchery that we've called normal. We need to pray for that school across the street. While the enemy's trying so hard to twist and pervert, if we can get the lights to come down. Listen, we need to cry out for our culture. Like I said, maybe you have issues in your family with your children in your own relationship. If you just want to reaffirm the fact today that, God, I want to be sexually pure. Maybe you're a young person and you're like, I want to wait for marriage and there's so much pressure, but pastor, I want God to give me the strength to keep the, the blessing of what he's given me to give it to my spouse. This altar is open this morning. Let's come here this morning and allow the Holy Spirit to touch us and minister to us this morning. Let's come. Come on. I'll come to the altar. Don't be cowards. God help us this morning. God help our culture this morning. Help our children this morning. Where we've tolerated immorality, God. Jesus. Heal marriages today. Cry out for our young people today, God. Bring purity once again, Lord, to your body, to your church. Purify us, God. 
forgive our sins, Lord. Forgive our indiscretions. Forgive our immorality, God. Forgive what we've tolerated, Lord. Jesus. Restore marriages, God. Restore marriages. Put marriages back together, Lord God. Grace and mercy. Jesus, Jesus. All my life you have been so, so good. Every breath that I am taking. Yes, Jesus. Bring purity, Lord God. Help us, Lord. Bless you, Jesus. Come on, cry out to him today. He knows where you're stuck. He knows where you're hurt. He knows where you've been betrayed, the sting of betrayal. Allow us to forgive, Lord God, to extend grace. Mercy, Lord God, mercy. Cleanse your body, Lord God. Cleanse your church. Cleanse your people. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. We need you, Lord. We need your blood. We need your cleansing. We need your restoration. For our children that we've trained up, that have went astray, Lord God, that have gone the way of the world, Lord God, we cry out for them, Lord God. Call them back to biblical morality, Lord, to holiness, holy living, Lord God. Convict hearts, convict our hearts, Lord. Help us, Lord, to labor on our relationships, our marriages, to make them pleasing in your sight. Thank you, Lord. Give and restore, Lord God. Cleanse and restore. Thank you, Lord Jesus. I have been faithful. All my life you have been so, so good. Every breath that I am able I'm going to sing of the goodness of God come on I'm going to sing of the goodness of God yes Lord thank you for your goodness thank you for your forgiveness God thank you for hearing our prayers this morning hallelujah you work your way back to your seats this morning, know that, amen, know that God hears our cries, amen, 
I want us to do something this morning as we're getting back to our seats. I want us to join our faith together, our hands together, and I want us to pray for our young people. Because as difficult as it is for us when we were coming up and to maintain purity, it's a hundred times more difficult for them. The gloves are off and the enemy is just all out assaulting this generation because he knows his time is short and he has to do a quick work. But as the body of Christ, we're going to stand and raise up a standard in Jesus' name and call our nation and call our young people back to biblical morality. God's way works. God's way brings blessing. So let's join our hands together and let's pray. Lord Jesus, I pray this morning, Lord God, that you would hear the cry of your people. We are a needy people, a sinful people who need grace and restoration. But Father, we cry out to you because the blood of the Lamb has made us acceptable in your sight. And so we cry out for a generation that has walked away, Lord God, and has gone into lifestyles that are unpleasing to you, Lord. Father, we call them back out of the darkness into the light. Father, that you would expose the lies that have passed for truth and that you would give us eyes to see this generation, eyes to see the truth of your precepts and your principles are there to protect us because you love us. They're not to be cast off, but to be embraced. So I pray this morning for every marriage, for every man, for every woman, for every boy, every girl, every child, every believer and every unbeliever. Holy Spirit, draw us to the truth and bring revival, a moral revival in our marriages, in our homes, and in our nations. The nations of this world, Father, move according to your spirit. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Give him praise this morning. We bless you, Lord. Amen. And as Jesus said about Proverbs 6, it is finished. Sister Kim.